Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's now turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to pick up at verse 10 and read through verse 14. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my afflictions. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this this passage from the Holy Spirit by the hand of, of the Apostle Paul. Father, we pray that as we meditate upon this passage that you would grant to us repentance. Father, earlier we confessed our sins and, and we, uh, we sang that, that tenth commandment about coveting. And Father, our discontentment is coveting. And so we pray that your word would have an effect upon our hearts and would lead to our repentance, and we would find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. The sins of our youth and the sins of our middle years and the sins of our old age, if we can be so bold as to think the span of our lives will run 70 or 80 if due to strength, that's to quote the psalm, right? So if you've surpassed that, you're doubly blessed. Um, but the sins of our youth usually stem from a vigorous, strong, young body and a lack of self-control. That's the sins of our youth, right? Then, then there are the sins of our older age that, are, that often stem from the breaking down of a body and a certain fatigue that sets in. If we sin with our bodies when we are young, we sin with our minds when we're old. Right? It, it's, and if we, but then, then there are the sins of our, our middle years, our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, right? In which we are in the race, right? We're, and, and we observe some of our friends and family succeeding and outpacing us in their lives, right? The struggle um, that has become more pronounced as I have gotten older and which I think marks our middle years is the sin of discontentment. I think discontentment 
marks those middle years. When we were young, we didn't have the ability to produce and are simply engaged in, in getting the education needed to produce, right? God is training us. Our parents are training us in order to be productive, right? When we are old, what once invigorated us is just vapor of vapors, as Solomon would remind us in his deathbed confessions in Ecclesiastes. But in our middle years, when we are in the workplace, when we're taking up more and more responsibility, we compare ourselves with those our same age who we went to school with and who we grew up with. We, we scan Facebook and we find out about old friends and, or current friends and what they're up to. We read our college alumni publications and before too long, we're jealous of somebody else's um, accomplishments and their success. So, um, you know, so-and-so whom I dated back in the day, you know, is rich. So-and-so has the career that, that I thought I would have. So-and-so was, was so irresponsible when they were young is now somehow working in the upper echelons of the government with an incredible amount of authority and responsibility under them. Right? So-and-so has a new large house in the wealthy suburbs of Atlanta. How did that happen? So-and-so's children just got scholarships to an Ivy League school. Wow, that's impressive. And so-and-so's children all have straight teeth. Right? And wonderful personalities. Right? So-and-so's cancer is cured, but mine's not. Right? We just see, we look around, and we become incredibly discontent. We live our middle years filled with jealousy and envy, and this leads us ultimately to that discontentment. We are dissatisfied with our lot in life. Our spouses, our cars... Education, our jobs, our savings accounts, our looks, our health, our opportunities, right? Our respectability, our gifts or lack of gifts, right? Our guts, whatever it might be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could make a long, long list of the things that comprise our jealousies. On and on we go comparing ourselves and our lot in life to those around us and we don't like what we see. Rather than pursuing contentment in our lives, though, we pursue those things and those situations in, we, in which we think contentment consists. Right? All the things we lack. And so we pursue what we lack, thinking that with them it will bring contentment. But is that where contentment comes from? By having that which we lack, or is it by becoming that which we are not? One of the quickest ways to diagnose whether you're, you are discontent is to examine those things that caused you to complain this past week. What did you complain about? Right? What has caused you to complain? I have been, um, <clears throat> I, I mean, I have been made exceedingly discontent about the temperature of the air outside. I mean, it's not funny. I mean, I was exasperated with 98 degree days, 97 and 96. 
it's October, right? And um, I would come in and pump the air down and just complain about the sweating all the time, right? When September rolls around each year, I believe I'm entitled to highs in the 70s, right? Because of having suffered through July and August. Seriously, I've vocalized my discontentment with the weather since early September, and and complaining about the weather is about the worst way to believe that you be, to prove that you believe in the providence of God. The weather. I can't do anything about the weather, and you can't do anything about the weather. Right? Complaining about the weather. No man has any control over that whatsoever. And what about you? What has set you off this week? How, how did your discontentment show forth? Not having the $6 necessary to buy a single espresso drink? Right? Having to get up at 6.30 in the morning in order to get ready to go to school? Right? Having to eat vegetables for dinner? Um, seeing somebody on Facebook other than yourself enjoying himself? Right? Facebook is a discontentment machine. Right, And many of us would do well, as my wife did, to get off of it. Right. Now that's one side of the equation. Right, When things that should not be any trouble for the godly soul lead us to discontentment. But the other side of the equation is this. When things that are truly suffering cause us to murmur and complain. When real suffering comes along and we murmur and complain. Right, our back hurts because we determined to be fruitful and multiply. How is that fair? Right, our bodies are dis- diseased in the prime of our lives. Right, we lost our job because we determined that we would honor God in in the workplace above men. And now we're we're impoverished and envious of those who have no conscience and and make a profession of Christ, but can work in the same workplace. Our children sin and forsake the Lord. Are we entitled to discontentment because of those circumstances? We think we are. We think we, it's, it's so easy for us to, to allow ourselves to be discontented um, in those situations we feel some shame for being discontented that we can't afford good, good vacations. But at other times, we believe our discontentment is principled because our circumstances are really difficult. They're painful. They hurt. Regardless, though, all discontentment, all discontentment is the rejection of the truth of the following verse in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. To be, discontent, to be discontent is to reject that as your testimony. Discontentment says living in such a way where the Lord it's it's living in such a way where the Lord is not quite your portion. Not quite. I mean, he's a lot, and he's helpful, but he's not my portion. 
in this world and in the next. You must have more things or more health or less suffering or something in addition to having God's love set upon you in Jesus Christ. Something more than that. In other words, discontentment is the conviction that gaining Christ, as the Apostle Paul puts it in the previous chapter of Philippians, is not enough. That's what discontentment says. Gaining Christ is not enough. It's the conviction that something outside of Christ is gain. And and brothers and sisters, that's the plague of our deceptive hearts. It is a plague that we all face and we all deal with. We're deceived into thinking that there is some substance in this world worth clinging to, away from Christ. And being deceived, we think that unless we have that substance or that thing, that existence, there can't be contentment. Our lives then become a repudiation of the statement that the Lord is our portion. And so we live to scoff at the fool that would be content merely to know God. It's all he wants, it's just to know God. And we scoff at him, thinking, wow, that's so simple-minded. Right? We live to mock the man who would count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul had the world by the tail. Right? The Apostle Paul, well-connected man. He knew what it was to be respected. He knew what it was to be held in high esteem. He knew what it was to be the envy of everybody else. Right? Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Right? Things were shaping up quite nicely for Paul. Then... Then this conversion thing happened. Right? And then God gave him this calling. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He had the world by the tail and then God converted him and said, I'm going to make you suffer. And suffer he did. And yet, it's only after this conversion as his suffering directly from the hand of God came that he learned contentment. It's only after that. How? By knowing the incredible riches he had in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The incredible riches. He knew what every noble martyr of old knew as they forsook the world and their lives. The gift of salvation in Jesus Christ is of inestimable value. And we forget that, don't we? Contentment is a gracious frame of spirit that says you can have all the world, I'll have Jesus. Contentment is an inward peace that in the face of others' worldly successes and lack of suffering remembers the surpassing value of salvation in Christ. Contentment is having the joy of the Lord as your strength, right? Contentment is having a sense of proportion that's shaped by Scripture, not by comparison, but by Scripture. It is realizing that to have Christ is much better than having an income that allows you to eat out 
every day. Right? Sinclair Ferguson writes, Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at His disposal in the place He appoints at the time He chooses with the provision He is pleased to make. Having no higher ambition than just to know the Lord. Are you in awe of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord? Perhaps that is your problem. Right? You've placed so much weight in your life on the things and circumstances valued by those who have no thought of God. You have ambition other than belonging to the Lord. Right? For some reason, it's become important for us to define success in a way that is totally foreign to the Word of God. But the Apostle Paul was content simply because he knew Jesus. He just knew Jesus. Why then does it take so much more for us to be content? We live in a decadent age, right? We live in a decadent age. That is why it seems like it's a struggle to us not to be able to purchase the things that other people are purchasing. There's very little struggle for us today. There's very little struggle. And yet there's very little contentment. So little struggle, so little contentment. Could it be that the reason there's little contentment is because it is suffering for the sake of the Lord, as the Apostle Paul was called to do, that reveals to us the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? We don't suffer, and so we don't really see much need for salvation. We don't see much need for Jesus Christ. We don't see much need for faith, for anything other than material sustenance, right? Have you heard of, now that I could go, actually, this is a good point to go to what I was reading this morning, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, old dead guy, um, Puritan, rare jewel. It's a jewel in that it's good to have, it's rare and very few people have it, is contentment. But he gave this example in here that is kind of strange. This is from um, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's about a guy, a martyr named Master Hooper. And he says this, in laboring to work his own heart, Right in laboring to work on his on contentment in his own heart, in the hearts of others, to contentedness in the midst of his sufferings, he has this comparison, and you may be put in mind of it every day. Now, this is going to change your life. <clears throat> he said, "I look upon the creature, I look upon an animal, and see what it suffers to be useful to me." Thus the brute beast must die, must be roasted in the fire, and boiled, must come on to the plate, be hacked all in pieces, must be chewed in my mouth, and in the stomach turned to that which is loathsome, if one should behold it, and all to nourish me to be useful to my body, and shall not I be willing to be made anything for God for his service." What an abundance of alterations the creature undergoes to be made useful 
to me, to preserve me, then if God will do so with me for his use, as he subjects the creatures to me for my use, why should I not rest contented? If God will take away my wealth and make me poor, if God will take away life, hack me to pieces, put me in prison, whatever he does, yet I shall not suffer more for God than the creature does for me. Right, so he's observed. Right, you get it? He's observing his plate, and on it is meat, and that meat, that animal has died, that animal has been butchered, that animal has been transported, that animal then gets cut up by his knife, that animal gets chewed, that animal gets turned into the loathsome stuff, and, and then God attempts to do something with us or put us something through something, and... Um, we reject it. Now, every time you eat meat, you're going to think of that, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to teach you to be content, thinking about how that animal has been torn apart time and time again and chewed in your mouth and was, was given to it. Have you heard of Polycarp, another martyr? Polycarp, first century martyr. Um, When Emperor Marcus Aurelius incited persecutions against Christians, they strongly pressured him, saying, Swear, and we will set you free. Curse Christ, and we will spare your life. That's a situation where you better know if you rest contented in Christ or not. If there's something in the world that, that has your attention, that you long for in this world, then you will make a certain decision when faced with that ultimate choice. Polycarp replied, I have served my, my Lord Christ for 86 years, and he has never harmed me, so how can I blaspheme against my king who saved me? And the governor said, If you do not fear the wild beasts, I will make the fire consume you if you do not repent. And St. Polycarp said, You threatened me with fire that burns for a while, then burns out. For you do not know the everlasting fire of judgment and the eternal punishment that are awaiting the evil ones. Now, why are you lingering? Do whatever you want. So Polycarp understood the glory, the embarrassment of riches that he had in God's Son. Right, And like Paul, it was his suffering that convinced him of that. So when he stood... They're threatened by, you know, ravenous animals and the stinging pain of flames. He could very contentedly say, do whatever you want. In other words, I have all I need. There's nothing you can take from me now. I need nothing more than what I have. I have the bread of life. I no longer hunger. I'm never thirsty. The Apostle Paul was content too. Notice what our passage says about that contentment. It was not given to Paul in a moment. It was learned, it says. That's what it says about Paul. That's what Paul says about it. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Verse 11. How was it learned? How did he learn contentment? By the things that he suffered. There is not a ten-step process for contentment. We go through God's curriculum, right, which is is centered on suffering. 
and strange that suffering would be God's means of teaching us contentment. And it would never work if the goal of contentment was simply to enjoy life. That would be contrary to the curriculum of suffering. But if the goal is to wean us from addiction to this world and to teach us to appreciate what we have in Christ, then suffering really does make sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. If Jesus himself learned obedience from the things he suffered, how much more should we learn from the things that God has appointed for our suffering? Ease in this life does not even lead to self-examination, let alone dependence upon God. Right, But the things we suffer, those lead us to cry out to God, to, in a good way, hate this life. To, to be absolutely discontented with this life while contented in Christ. To search beyond the here and now for a reason. Suffering will be used by God to purify our thoughts, and in the end, its goal is to lead to contentment. So suffering takes our minds off the world and its temporary reliefs and puts our thoughts on God and those things that are eternal. Thomas Watson, in his book, The Art of Divine Contentment, another old dead Puritan, says there are two things that keep us from learning contentment. He writes, slighting what we hear, the first one. Christ is the pearl of great price. When we disesteem this pearl, we shall never learn either its value or its virtue The gospel is a rare mystery. In one place it is called the gospel of grace and another the gospel of glory because in it, as in a transparent glass, the glory of God is resplendent. But he who has despises this mystery and will hardly ever learn to obey it. He who looks upon the things of heaven as unimportant things And perhaps the driving of a trade or carrying on some political design to be of greater importance, this man is in the high road to damnation and will hardly ever learn of things concerning his salvation. Who will learn that which he thinks is scarcely worth learning? And then second, slighting what we hear, not not listening to the word of God and and the great glories that we have laid up for us in Christ. And then the other thing is forgetting what we hear. If a scholar has his rules laid before him and he forgets them as fast as he reads them, he will never learn. Aristotle calls the memory the scribe of the soul. And Bernard calls it the stomach of the soul because it has a retentive faculty and turns heavenly food into nutrition. We have great memories in other things. right? We remember that which is vain. Cyrus could remember the name of every soldier in his huge army. We remember injuries. This is to fill a precious cabinet of the mind with dung. How soon do we forget the sacred truths of God? We are apt to forget three things. Our faults, our friends, our instructions. Many Christians are like sieves. Put a sieve into the water and it is full, but take it forth out of the water and all runs out. Just so, while they are hearing a sermon, they remember something, but like the sieve out of the water, as soon as they are gone out of the church, all is forgotten. Let these sayings, says Christ, sink down into your ears, 
In the original, it is put these sayings into, into your ears. As a man that would hide the jewel from being stolen locks it up safe in his chest. Let them sink in. The word must not fall only as dew that wets the leaf, but as rain which soaks to the root of the tree and makes it fructify. Fructify, bear fruits to be fruitful. That rain that goes all the way down to the roots. That's what the Word of God should be for you. It should sink down to the roots. To summarize all of that, we don't think highly enough of Jesus. And we forget the things that He has taught us about Himself and His salvation and His glory and our welcome into all that is His His kingdom. This is why you need to be under the teaching of God's Word every day. Every chance you can get. You need reminder of the things of God from His Word on more than just Sunday mornings. The, The Apostle in verse 12 talks about how he has learned contentment in various circumstances because it is equally fleeting when we have much or have little. It's equally as fleeting. If we are prosperous, we don't have enough. Right? And if we are impoverished, we don't have enough. And we're always discontent, no matter what we have. Discontentment strikes no matter the outward circumstances of our lives because our lives do not consist in our possessions. The secret Paul speaks about is, is no matter the circumstances and their corresponding discontentment. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. In other words, he can suffer and be content because Christ is at work in him. He can have his eye on eternity even while the whole world crumbles down about him uh, because Christ is at work in him. Right? In other words, contentment comes when we draw strength from Christ and not from our possessions, our circumstances, our successes, our position in life, our relative position in comparison to other people in this life. Again, Jeremiah Burroughs from the rare jewel of Christian contentment gets the last word. He says, indeed, our afflictions may be heavy and we may cry out, oh, I can't bear them. We cannot bear such an affliction. Though you cannot tell how to bear, with, bear it with your own strength, yet how can you tell what you will do with the strength of Jesus Christ? You, can, you say you cannot bear it, so you think that Christ could not bear it? But if Christ could, not, could bear it, why may you not come to bear it? You say, can I have the strength of Christ? Yes. It is made over to you by faith. The scripture says that the Lord is our strength. God himself is our strength and Christ is our strength. So God will sanctify to you your deepest distress. Right? And though and though that, you know, in and, and, and through even that temptation to uh, discontentment. Through that very suffering, you will learn contentment by casting yourself entirely upon God. Your ambition in this life is to believe in your heart that God is your only portion. 
That's contentment. God is my only portion. That's contentment. Don't forget that you have been made a citizen of heaven where you will eternally rest in complete provision of every one of your needs and desires. You have God as your portion in this life. You need nothing else. You need nothing else. You need nothing else. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess to you our discontentment. We confess to you that we have we have tried to bargain with you and say that we would be good followers of you if this 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 and this were in place in our lives. And you have told us that it is by tribulation that we shall enter the kingdom of God. And so I ask, Father, that we would be content with tribulation, knowing that it means we gain Christ. Help us to be content with trials. Help us to be content with suffering. Help us to be content in all these circumstances. Help us be content with little and to be content in prosperity Father, knowing that we have Jesus Christ, we have the pearl of great price, we have no need of anything else. Our Father, we pray that we would learn, that we would not, not kick against the curriculum that you've given us for learning contentment. Father, I pray that we would be, be satisfied with that curriculum. I pray that we would remember in the midst of new things that we're suffering, Father, that's, that you have provided for us salvation. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.